0: How's it going, everybody? My name is Lee Woodmancy, and I'm the Discipleship Pastor here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Um, If you are watching on uh, YouTube or listening on Spotify, you are catching us in the middle of week 12 of our Storyline series. Um, I'm going to take this opportunity of the week of Thanksgiving to record this video to catch up on some material that we had to skip a couple of weeks ago. And so if you are catching this now, we're going to be right in stride uh, whenever we come back to meet in person after Thanksgiving, Um, but we obviously won't be meeting this week In person. So, uh, what I want to do is I just want to go ahead and turn straight to um, our material and where we have been, and specifically where we were last session. Uh, And so, last session, we basically covered everything um, that was uh, pertaining to the divided kingdom whenever we had uh, Jeroboam up in the north and Rehoboam down in the south. And we talked about where eventually those kingdoms were going to end. And for that, Uh, northern kingdom, that was going to be destruction at the hand of of Assyria. And uh, for Judah down in the south, it's going to be at the hands of the Babylonians. We're going to get to those two big events today. But where we landed whenever we talked about this entire session At the end of the day, with three major points: that history matters, theology matters, and covenantal faithfulness matters. We talked about how the history that we have inherited as Christians and what we see is what happens to God's people. um, That is something that we are meant to learn from. We are meant to hold uh, and esteem the Word of God and how it recounts the downfall of these two kingdoms. And like that's important for us. And God working through history is literally the whole point of this series, right? And so. History matters. Theology matters. We saw that whenever the Northern Kingdom got sideways with their theology and were doing a whole bunch of idol worship, well then, yeah, of course it made sense that God was going to judge them for that. And then at the end of the day, that covenantal faithfulness is what really matters. We are trying to answer the one question over and over again in this series of how is relationship going to be restored? We asked that question immediately in Genesis chapter 3 whenever Adam and Eve had sinned, and we're going to keep asking it all the way until we close this series out and the question of how is relationship to be restored is only ever always answered by God's covenantal faithfulness. And so that mirroring of our faithfulness to the covenant that God has made with us is pretty important, right? So that's where we were last session. Where are we heading this session? Well, I've already told you, but we are basically going to cover the destruction of the northern kingdom and the destruction of the southern kingdom. And we're going to talk about how Israel fell. We're going to talk about Josiah. We're going to talk about the Babylonians for a time. Um, It's going to be good stuff. These are good things, yeah. So let's just go ahead and drive on into um, this session's material. So uh, the first thing we need to talk about is the destruction of Assyria. I'm sorry, of Israel um, at the hands of the Assyrians. And so where we left off last session was we were introduced to this guy named Ahaz, and King Ahaz was um, basically. Uh, very impressed with Damascus, right? We saw that he is ruling there in Judah down at the south. He had been attacked by Assyria and he had been attacked um, by uh, Israel. And eventually what ends up happening is Assyria is going to make Israel a vassal state, and that they are going to eventually be destroyed, um, what we're going to see here. But we're going to fast forward just a little bit, and who we're introduced introduced to is a guy named Hosea. And Hosea was the king of Israel, and he was made a vassal. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with that term, a vassal is basically a nation or a kingdom um, that would be uh, subjugated by a larger power. And that larger power is going to demand some things of the of the vassal state. And normally what that means is that the vassal state is going to be required to pay tribute. Um, So they have to pay a bunch of money so that their uh, overlords don't attack them. Um, And you can imagine what's going to happen if they don't pay them is that their overlords are going to attack them and not just attack them, but they're going to um, destroy them. And so what we see is that Shalmaneser was uh, the king of Assyria at this time. And so he was expecting to be paid regularly by King Hoshea. Um, And initially he was doing that. He was paying off the Assyrians. They weren't going to come and destroy them. But eventually, Hoshea then failed to do this, right? And every time that we see this in history, it never goes well, right? It either leads to this destruction of this vassal state or it leads to some kind of revolution. Um, And I'll just go ahead and give you a spoiler here. It doesn't lead to revolution at this time. It leads to destruction. And so what ends up happening is Hosea fails to pay this king for his uh, tribute for Shalmaneser up in the north. And instead, what he does, he goes down to Egypt, and he tries to form a military alliance with Egypt so that they can rebel against the Assyrians. Um, At this point, Egypt is about the only um, superpower in the world, uh, if you could think about it in that time. Outside of Assyria, and so uh, Hosea was tired of paying uh, rent, basically, to this uh, this king of Assyria, and so he goes and he talks to um, the king of Egypt, and he says, "You know what? Let's form us an alliance, um, and let's let's stop this whole thing." You can read all this in Second Kings chapter seventeen, verses one through five. And so, um, as soon as this conspiracy is launched, Shalmaneser comes calling. He gets a hold of uh, not only Samaria but actually all of Israel, and so he comes. He imprisons um, the the king of Israel, which was Hoshea, and then he besieges the actual capital, which is Samaria, and eventually it falls, and the rest of Israel along with it. Um, and this is really one of those dark times in the history of. Of not just uh, Israel, the nation as the northern kingdom, but like as the people of God. Like, this is when we see God beginning to work this process of where his people are going to be removed from the land. We're going to see this from Leviticus 18 here a little bit later, but this is exactly what was promised was going to happen. And so we have uh, King Shalmaneser is coming. He's basically destroyed the northern kingdom. He's going to start taking everybody away. And what ends up happening from there is that not only are uh, the inhabitants from the northern kingdom, are they going to be displaced? They're going to be taken out of their land. They're going to be scattered among the, uh, the Assyrian people. Uh, kingdom, but also that whole area is going to be repopulated by a whole bunch of people who were not native to that land. There are going to be some Canaanites, some folks that we would think of um, that would have taken the land prior to the conquest or would have occupied the land prior to the conquest. Um, but there's also going to be a whole bunch of guys like the Babylonians are going to be brought in. Because at this time, remember, the Assyrian Empire is going to be in charge of basically all the land that would be eventually the Babylonian and even the Persian Empire. You can think of it in that sense. So um, in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 24 through 25, you can see that Assyria destroys Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, and Israel is essentially wiped out. And like I said, this is a really dark day for Israel's history, but I wanna bring us to one big point that we need to take away from this whole process here. I just want to remind us that Israel's idolatry was the issue at hand here. It wasn't necessarily because um, Hosea had tried to cut an alliance with Egypt, although that was problematic. It was because of their idolatry that had been introduced even all the way back from Solomon whenever he was marrying all these wives, right? So this is something that was like ingrained in the fabric of who Israel was. And so God had given them plenty of warnings. In fact, I want to read for us 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 13. And this is what uh, is recorded there. It says, Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Thus, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers, that I sent you by my servants, the prophets. And the point that I wanna make here is that failing to be obedient to the covenant of God always results in this removal from God's blessing. Right? So if the question that we're asking this whole series is how is relationship to be restored, and the answer is God's covenantal faithfulness always, only ever, right? If that's the answer, well then what do we need to do is we need to hold to the covenant. We need to be obedient ourselves. Well, what happens whenever we don't? Well, we don't get the blessings of the covenant. We get the curses. That's Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28, right? This is literally lined out for us as what God promised was going to happen. And what do the prophets do? As covenantal enforcers, they come and they remind us of all the terms of the covenant. And then they hold that up against our covenant. Activity and our actual behavior, and they say, Do these match? And if they don't, then return to covenantal faithfulness. That's literally what's going on here in that first or excuse me, second Kings 17 passage. So just reminding us, we should be thinking about that question of I thought God made a promise to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob, and we see it all the way down to David, of where there's going to be this promised land, the nations are going to be blessed through this people. And we just had 10 of the 12 tribes carted off to God knows where we should be thinking, how is relationship going to be restored here? We should see this as like, frankly, the undoing of the conquest back in Joshua where Israel, the entire nation, was tasked with going and displacing these people and, um, and making sure that they are going to occupy the land. And here we have not God's people occupying the land, but they're actually being removed, and other people who weren't promised the land are being populated in their cities. This is such a big deal for us that um, we should see that there's some tension here. And what I want to remind us of just individually and just us as Christians is like there are going to be times where it seems as though God's promises are starting to fall apart. It's going to seem as though that this certainly cannot be the way that God is going to be working in history. Uh, Last session, I ended by talking about Habakkuk and how that's such a great parallel for us in so many ways. And I just want to remind us that God's at work here. God is at work and we cannot lose sight of that. So, all right, so the northern kingdom is destroyed. Uh, Israel essentially is no more. The people are scattered, and they are thrown into turmoil. And so now we're going to turn our focus to the southern kingdom. And what we're going to pick up on is with Josiah. And so where I want to remind us is that last time that we were talking about the southern kingdom in Judah, we were actually talking about this cat named Hezekiah. Um, and Hezekiah is going to be the uh, the, the guy who starts um, this process of reforming Judah, but it's just, it's not enough. It's just too little, too late. And so Hezekiah and then Josiah are the last two good kings of Israel. You can go read second Kings chapter 16, one through three, and you can see that um, Ahaz, who was Hezekiah's father was the one who burned one of his sons alive as a as a sacrifice. So Hezekiah comes to the throne. He starts implementing a bunch of reforms, undoing a bunch of stuff that his father Ahaz had uh, had messed up. Um, this is where we're seeing Isaiah, the prophet, is speaking to Ahaz and Hezekiah a lot. Hezekiah eventually dies. His son and grandson, these cats named Manasseh and Ammon, are dirtbags. They basically undo everything that Hezekiah did, and then we run into Josiah. So what did Josiah actually do? If you go to 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23, you'll actually read his story. And he is an excellent example of a king who is trying his level best to get Israel, or excuse me, at this point, Judah, to, to be adherent to the law. And so what do we see going on here? Well, number one, he is, Jos- he is Israel's, Judah's final good king. He's the last good king of the whole lot. So hold on to that. Now, there's going to be other kings that come after him. Jehoiakim is going to be one of those dudes we're going to look at here in a bit. Um, But it doesn't go so hot for them. Like It doesn't matter what they do. It actually goes pretty bad. So in 2 Kings chapter 22, verses 3 through 7, we actually see that Josiah is going to repair the temple. It had been falling into disrepair. Um, The Assyrians had been pressing in on them. Even some Babylonian cats are going to come um, and start plundering some junk. We'll see later in this story. But Josiah actually repairs the temple. So he is doing right by God and actually doing his level best to make sure that worship is taking place the right way. In the process of them repairing the temple and you can read this in second kings chapter 22 verses 8 through 11 they find the book of the law it's rediscovered right and what i want us to see there is like this should be kind of crazy for us that the book of the law is rediscovered like how is it that judah had been operating in the temple I don't know. Like they weren't operating well. I know that much. So they rediscover the book of the law. And what happens from there is that Josiah begins to like disseminate the book of the law and have it taught among his people and revival breaks out. That's in verses 12 through 20. You can see how revival is on the move, that God is stirring up the hearts of the leaders, and they are trying to be covenantally faithful. And what ends up happening from there is that Isaiah, or excuse me, Josiah is actually going to remove all idolatry from Judah, Every just about everything that he can. He doesn't completely do the job, but like he is doing his um, job in leading the nation in covenantal faithfulness, which removes idolatrous worship, right? And so that's what he is doing. And then there is an amazing line. I'm just going to read this for us in 2 Kings chapter 23, verses 21 through 23. This is what uh, we read there. And the king, Josiah, commanded all the people, Keep the Passover of the Lord, your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant, speaking of the Torah, Deuteronomy, verse 22, for no such Passover had been kept since the day of the judges who judged Israel or before all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. And so we see that the Passover is finally celebrated. Um, we have a lot of questions that we could ask right now about what was Israel? What was Judah doing? Like there were sacrifices going on, presumably. We see that some of the minor prophets, especially Amos talks about how in Israel, there were these prophets or these, these sacrifices that were being made improperly. Um, In Judah, that was happening as well. But like the Passover wasn't being kept. Like this is such a big deal for us that When we think about the history of the Old Testament and we read the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, we think that there's like all sorts of like religious activity going on. And certainly there was, but like we just read in second Kings that from the judges to Josiah, the Passover was not being kept. And we keep returning to this question of how is relationship to be restored or in this case even maintained between God and his people It's definitely not going to be because they were so great. They're not even keeping the Passover. Like this was the big thing they're supposed to be doing, and they're not doing it. They hadn't done it for generations. But Josiah is restoring that. And so there's uh, more of a hubbub at this point we'll talk about in the next slide uh, is that um, Assyria is— on the decline, essentially, and so the only other superpower in the area was um, Egypt, and so Egypt and Assyria have an alliance at this point, and they are actually fighting the upstarts, the Babylonians. So the Babylonians are further to the east. I'll show you a map here in a bit. Um, so the Assyrians and the Egyptians have a, have an alliance, and King Nico who was the pharaoh of Egypt, he was moving troops up north to Assyria so they could go fight the Babylonians. And when Josiah heard of this, he actually moves to stop King Nico from moving his troops so he can go. And join forces with the Assyrians to fight the Babylonians. And I think this is something that was right, right? the The kings of Israel and Judah, their task was to lead the nation in covenantal faithfulness and protect them, right? That was their job, was to protect them. Well, if you have an entire army moving through your land, this isn't going to go well. And so he goes out there to stop them. And the problem with that is in second kings chapter twenty three verses twenty eight through thirty, we see that Josiah dies. Catches an arrow, he's on his chariot, he gets taken back to Jerusalem, and eventually he dies there. And all of these reforms, all of this covenantal faithfulness that Josiah was driving Judah towards, basically evaporate. He catches an arrow in the middle of his duties to protect the nation. And this is actually a bit of a precursor to what's going to happen because the Assyrians are failing. The Egyptians are failing. The Babylonians are on the rise. And this is where our story really comes to a head for Judah is that things start to go from bad to worse for them. So Josiah's dead. There's our last good king. So here's what I want to do. I just want to just remind us of like this big picture of what is going on in Judah and what it is that we should take away from this. We should see that God was finally being worshipped rightly. He finally was. The Passover is back. We're starting to read the book of the law. Um, the temple is getting kept up. The idolatry is being removed. However, I just want to say this. God was being worshipped rightly, but it was too late. It was simply too late too late. So in second Kings chapter 23, verses 25 through 27, I want to read this before him, there was no King like him. Speaking of Josiah, who turned to the Lord with all of his heart and all his soul and with all his might. You should hear Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, the Shema there, that this king is doing what the Shema requires. There's no one like him. He's he's pursuing the Lord with his heart, his soul, and his might, according to the law of Moses, and nor did anyone arise after him. Well, yeah, because he's the last good king. Verse 26, still... The Lord did not turn from, his, from the burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because of all the provocations of Manasseh that had provoked him. Manasseh and Ammon were um, respectively the grandfather and father of Josiah. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight, as I have removed Israel. And I will cast off this city, speaking of Jerusalem, that I have chosen, and the house of which I have said, my name shall be there. God is absolutely still going to remove Judah, just like he had removed Israel. And this should make us kind of scared. This should make us kind of scared because it brings back into sharp relief that promise to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob that eventually gets to uh, David, where there's going to be a king on his throne forever. And we've already lost the Northern kingdom. And now the Southern kingdom is about to be destroyed. And we're still left in the lurch saying, what happens? Like Hezekiah was one of Israel's greatest Kings and it didn't go well for him. However, his grandson, Josiah, is going to pick up the mantle, or great-grandson, rather, is going to pick up the mantle. He's going to run with it. And one thing that I think is really important whenever we see the history here, I told us a couple of weeks ago whenever we talked about the role of the prophets, is that I wasn't going to talk about individual prophets except whenever they were um, really important to the storyline. And now they are. So back during Hezekiah's reign, there was this cat named Isaiah. You should know him. Isaiah was one who spoke with Ahaz and Hezekiah frequently. And I want to read something for us. And this is in 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 30 and 31. As Hezekiah and Isaiah are speaking, Hezekiah actually tell, or Isaiah actually tells Hezekiah, Hey, I've got a word from the Lord about this nation that's going to be attacking you, about these Assyrians. This is what verses 30 31 of chapter 19 says. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. And he's talking about when they are taken into exile, the Assyrians are going to be destroyed by the Babylonians. You're going to be taken into exile with the rest of Judah. And but once again, they will bear fruit upward for out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant and out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord will do this. God had already decided that this would be the means by which he was going to discipline his children in Judah. He was going to send the Babylonians. They were going to destroy mostly everything. They were going to go into exile for a couple generations. But they were going to come back. And when they came back, there was just going to be a faithful remnant that was, in fact, going to do what the Lord had commanded them to do. And they were going to pursue faithfulness and they were going to do the things that God had told them to in the law. There's eventually going to be a return to the land, but it's going to take a little bit to get there. It's going to take a bit to get there. So I just want to remind us that even though God was being worshipped rightly, it, it was a bit too late. I said last session that um, the trajectory that Judah was on was identical to the trajectory of Israel. It was just later, and here we're seeing that come full speed. So before we talk about the destruction of Judah, we know that's coming. I need to introduce for us a couple of the, the key players in um, in this area. And so I want to throw up a map here. So if you're listening on audio only, sorry, check out the notes. They're online. You can find them on our website. Um, but for those of you on the YouTube video, whenever you're looking at this, I just want to point out the, the green area there of the Babylonian empire. That was basically the old Assyrian empire. The old Assyrian empire actually went further North, um, up towards Lydia, which is what is uh, present day Turkey. And so the Assyrian empire was much more where the median empire is all the way over. Towards Ekbaktana. We'll talk about them much later. Um, But that was the Assyrian Empire. And when the Assyrian Empire fell, we're going to see that Babylon which is that green and in that gray the Medes they were aligned together they become the new Assyrian Empire and they actually end up eventually taking over what was most of Egypt at that time um, whenever we look at this I want to point out two major areas um, there is the city of Nineveh which is uh, if you just follow south of the median Empire you'll see the Tigris River River and then Nineveh um, if you want to read about how Nineveh is going to be destroyed don't just go read Jonah you need to go read Nahum. And Nahum actually lines out that there's going to be like this crazy flood that happens. Well, if you're looking at Nineveh, you see it's on the Tigris River, as every ancient city was, of any note, was on a river. And so what the Babylonians do whenever they go to capture the Assyrian capital, which was Nineveh, um, when they go to capture it, they basically block up the gates and the uh, <laughs> the waterways that are flowing out of the city, and they basically flood the entire city. And there's actually archaeological ruins where where we find high water marks where the water level had gotten so high inside the city. And it's actually exactly as Nahum talked about what happened. So the Babylonians destroy Nineveh and they take over the Assyrian Empire. And boom, now we get the new big baddies on the stage, the Babylonians. Yeah. All right. So this map is reflecting what happens after 620 BC, which is when the Battle of Nineveh takes place. There you have it. All right. So if you were on audio only, sorry about that. Go check out the notes. You'll make sense of it from there. All right. So let's talk about the Babylonian ascent and the Assyrian decline. We've already talked about some of this stuff, but let me give us some broad strokes. The Assyrian Empire had consolidated most of its power over Syria to its south and Israel, which was the northern kingdom, basically all the way down towards Judah. They had consolidated their power, but they hadn't done so in their east, which is where Babylon, which is where the Medes were at, right? The Chaldeans, which is in the southern end of the Babylonian Empire. The Assyrians had never reached that far. And so this was a big nation that was just kind of looming out there, and they never took care of it. And so during this time, Babylon was starting to gather their strength. And what did they do? At this time, they were a bit of a vassal state for a time under the Assyrians, and then they kind of won their independence, but they were still in hostilities. Well, eventually, The Babylonians outright rebel against Assyria. They're no longer paying tribute. And remember how I told you that paying tribute um, is great for keeping the peace, but when you stop, it either leads to destruction or it leads to revolution. Well, this time it led to revolution. And so in 612 BC is when we have the Battle of Nineveh, and then 620 later, whenever we have the Babylonian Empire is really kind of set, that's whenever Nineveh is destroyed right? Um, this is when the Babylonians are finally on the stage. The Assyrians were big baddies and now you've got an even worse big baddies on the stage. You've got the Babylonians who are rolling around. Yep. So the King that really, um, Interacts with our material is this cat named Nebuchadnezzar, right? Nebuchadnezzar should be a fairly familiar name to us. You can go read Second Kings chapter twenty-four and Second Chronicles chapter thirty-six, and that's going to tell you all we need to know about Nebuchadnezzar and Judah and what happens with Jehoiakim and those cats. Um, but yeah, so let's just talk about that dude. So Nebuchadnezzar comes and he makes Judah a vassal state. That means Judah has to pay uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and if he doesn't pay Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to come and destroy everything. Well. Guess what? Jehoiakim, who is the king at this time, he actually does submit initially. He pays his tribute. He pays them off. He makes sure that no one's going to come and bust through Jerusalem and steal anything. And that's great. That's good news. Until he doesn't. And he eventually rebels. Sure enough, he makes another alliance with the with the Egyptians, and it does not go well. It doesn't go well. Remember? Every time that you stop paying tribute, it either leads to destruction or revolution. It ain't revolution. It ain't revolution. So let's pick up on actually talking about the destruction of Judah, right? So as we've already talked about here, Nebuchadnezzar had subjugated um, Judah. And so they were a vassal state. Jehoiakim was supposed to be paying them and they eventually rebels. And this is this is we should see looming on the horizon. Hey, Isaiah said that we're going to go into exile under the hand of the Babylonians. Like maybe we should just not do this. Um, in fact, not only had Isaiah been speaking about this a couple of generations before, there's this cat named Jeremiah who's running around all over the place trying to get people to understand that the Babylonians are in fact coming, and there's nothing that we can do to stop them. That we are going to go in exile, and so. They stop paying tribute and uh, Israel is attacked. I'm sorry, Judah is attacked and Jerusalem actually gets invaded. um, And uh, there was actually a bunch of stuff taken away out of the temple um, during this first raid. Okay, great. So they start paying tribute again. But sure enough, Jerusalem was invaded a second time whenever they stopped paying um, tribute. And so since Jehoiakim was uh, the leader at this point, He had been captured, and so um, the the king of Babylon begins to install new kings, and there's this cat named Zedekiah. He's now installed as a king. Excellent. He's going to start paying until he stops, and then he rebels. And as you can imagine, Jerusalem was once again attacked. You stop paying, then I'm coming after you, and I'll get my pound of flesh one way or another. And so now not only was Jerusalem besieged, It was basically destroyed, completely razed to the ground. And during that time, Zedekiah is actually blinded and arrested. And whenever that massive insult to their nation's head, the king... Like, you should see that if that's what they did to the king, they're going to do even worse to the people. And we see that, um, and again, every bit of this is in uh, that section of Second Chronicles 36, and I'm sorry, Second Chronicles 36 and Second Kings 24 and 25. Um, you can see that the temple is actually plundered. They take all the stuff that's worth taking, and then they destroy the temple. If you've ever heard the phrase, the uh, first or, second temple period. The first temple period is anything between Solomon, when he built the temple, and right now. After this point, for about 70 years, the temple's just destroyed. And then we get to um, Haggai and Malachi, these two, um, uh, or Zechariah. Haggai and Zechariah are two prophets. It's um, Rubabel and Josiah, or I'm sorry, Joshua, who's going to be the high priest. Um, these are going to be guys who are going to lead Israel. Um, which is now the reconstituted Israel they're going to come back from Babylonian exile and they're going to rebuild the temple that begins the second temple period but right now the temple's been destroyed and what happens from there is that Judah's now exiled into Babylon i think that's like if Israel being destroyed by the Assyrians was like the low water or the low point of Israel's history at that point this is even worse because the identity of the nation not just Israel or Judah, but all of Israel and Judah together as God's people, they had the temple that was there for them to worship at. And it does not exist anymore. All that good stuff is over in Babylon now, and the temple has been destroyed. So what do we do? What's what's the point that we should take away from here? So at the end of the day, I, w- I want to just read something for us. This is Leviticus chapter 18, verses 26 to 28. And I told you I was going to read it a little bit later. So here we are. Um, This is what Leviticus uh, 18, 26 to 28 says. Um, And this is in the middle of a section about sexual morality and a bunch of other uh, purity laws, but this stands for the whole bit about uh, what was expected of Israel in covenantal fidelity. This is what Leviticus says. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, which was lined out earlier, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. So neither you people who are called by my name or anyone who's living with you. If y'all are going to be identified with me, this is how you live." for the people of the land who were born of you did all these abominations so that the land became unclean. Okay. So don't do that. Verse 28, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean as it vomited out the nation that was before you. And here's the point that I want to make is that God remained faithful to his covenant promises in the Torah, This whole time we've been asking this question, how is relationship to be restored? How is God going to work out covenantal faithfulness when he's removing people to the land? But I think it's important for us to see, even at this point, God is actually being faithful to the covenant that he promised. He told them, if you do these things, you will be removed. The land will vomit you out. It will get you out of here. It will expel you. He did that with the Assyrians for the northern kingdom and the Babylonians for the southern kingdom. God is actually being covenantally faithful, which is mind-boggling at some level because whenever we read this, we are still left in the lurch with well, then how is relationship to be restored? And let me tell you, in 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 21, this is after Judah had been destroyed, Jerusalem had been raised, and this is what we read is kind of like the final whimper, but there's hope. In 2 Kings 25, 21, this is what it says. Judah was taken into exile out of its land. And you notice what I said there, it didn't say out of the land, but it was out of its land. God is still holding out hope that there is just opportunity for for the nation of Judah and Israel for the people of God to be reconstituted because he is still remaining covenantally faithful, even in the middle of this discipline, right? There is still hope. God is going to exile them for a time, but there will be a remnant that will return. Go read Isaiah. Go read Jeremiah. That's the whole point. There's going to be this remnant. Jeremiah and them boys are doing everything they can to get everyone to see that God is not playing about this exile business, and it's going to be real bad but there will be a return. It's a little too late for the nation, for Judah, but not for its people, right? Let's make a distinction there. The the difference between Judah as the nation um, under Josiah, like, yeah, their time was up, but the people of God, their time is not up. So the question then remains, how will relationship be restored? Only ever always through the covenantal faithfulness of God. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about some final thoughts, and these are real simple, real quick. And I just want to run through them. This is the lowest point in all of Israel's history. The northern kingdom, Israel, is destroyed. Judah as a nation doesn't exist anymore. Jerusalem has been raised, and the temple doesn't exist. This is the low point of Israel's history by far. But I want us to see that God is still working through this process. God is still working and he is actively working through history, working through the theology, working through all these things that we talked about even last session, that theology and history and faithfulness matters. God is still working it. He is still sending prophets to them. He is still sending leaders so that the people would be led into covenantal faithfulness. And I just want to remind us that even as grim as it looks for Israel at this time, rightly so. As grim as it looks, God is still at work. He is going to bring about a restoration. Now, the rest of Israel's history, we think, okay, we go on the other side of the Babylonian um, exile, then things are going to be great. No. No. Much like the lesson that we were meant to learn from the kings and even the judges is that we keep seeing these leaders come up and they keep failing and they keep failing and they keep failing. Yes, because they cannot bear the weight of complete, total, perfect covenantal faithfulness. Only one king actually can, and that is Jesus. And so that's where we land. We have this hope that there is going to be this remnant who is going to be restored eventually. We have this hope that there is going to be a king who is going to come and he's going to make everything right. But we still got a couple of centuries before we even get to that point. we still got a ways to go. And even after we get through those centuries, it ain't going to go so hot for that king when he's here on earth. And here we are two millennia later looking back and saying, yeah, of course, we should see that it's going to take a while. So here's my encouragement to us. Even though this is a low point in Israel's history, the thing that we have got to hear is that there is hope and that God is working all along. If we take a a long view of history all the way back to Genesis and to where we are today, we can see that God is actively involved in his world. And I just want to encourage you that if you're struggling with some kind of fear of what the future may bring like I just want to tell you like yeah I get that people uh, God's people have suffered from that ever since we've existed but we are not meant to despair for tomorrow we are not meant to worry about tomorrow because we have a good king who we can trust to bring about the right ends at the right time even if it's difficult for us now what we need is patient endurance and we need hope and we need faith yeah So that's where we end. We are basically going to come around to um, uh, the material uh, after the Thanksgiving break the way that we had planned, and so we're going to be talking about uh, the, re- the entire captivity and the return from captivity. We peeked over into the destruction of Jerusalem, but when we come back after Thanksgiving break, that's whenever we're going to be hitting on uh, the captivity. And then my favorite parts is we've got basically two weeks to talk about the Greeks and then the Romans, which bring us right up to your boy Johnny B in the New Testament. So uh, hopefully you will join us for those um, sessions in the future, whether you're doing it online, on YouTube, on Spotify, or if you're doing it in person with us, I would love that. Um, and so I just want to say right now do good and don't sin.